our meditation from the text in Matthew that we have read together. And today I want to talk about six hours that accomplished the greatest work ever done. Six hours that changed everything. In six days, God created the heaven and the earth. In six hours, Christ changed it. In six hours, six incredible hours that ticked God's eternal redemptive purpose in the time, the Lord Jesus fatally crushed the head of the serpent and purchased eternal salvation for all of God's elect from every time, from every place on earth. Mark's timeline of the crucifixion is unique. Matthew and Luke identify the sixth to the ninth hour as the time of darkness. But in addition to that, Luke, or rather Mark rather, adds the third hour as the beginning of the cross work. The progression of God's unfailing redemptive purpose that entered time just after man's fall now reaches this, the last six hours of the fullness of time. The last six hours of the incarnate God's humiliation, the climax of his vicarious obedience and suffering for his people. But I was particularly struck with Mark's reference here to the ninth hour all the way, or from the third hour rather, all the way to the ninth hour. He frames his portrayal of the crucifixion in terms of these six hours. From 9 a.m. to noon, the cross was in plain view, a skeptical spectacle for all to see. From noon to 3 p.m., the cross was engulfed in total darkness. None could see the infinite work that was being done the infinite suffering that was being endured. So this morning I want us, as we reflect upon the climax of Christ's suffering and his death, I want us to consider the cross from these two perspectives. The cross in the light and the cross in the dark. Considering first then the cross in the light. The cross now was in plain view for all to see. And there's things that we can see as we survey the cross that ought to warm our hearts if you're a believer, ought to put us in wonder, ought to put us in love and praise. As the hymn writer penned, when I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. How can we look and survey that cross without then pouring that contempt on all of our pride? 
And as we consider the cross in the light, we see, first of all, that it was a conspicuous place. They brought him to the place Golgotha. Golgotha is the Aramaic word that means skull. Greek word is cranium. Latin word is Calvary, the place of the skull, a conspicuous place, a prominent place. For it was the custom in those days to execute criminals in conspicuous places. Not a secret work. Here he refers this place called the skull, refers to a small little hill outside of Jerusalem that resembled a skull. Today it's there at a place where there is a bus depot at the very base of it, a tourist attraction. But it was a prominent place even, I say, in the days of Jesus when he was now put here on this skull-like hill. Prominent thoroughfare. A place that was easily seen by all those that were passing by, all those that were entering into the city. It's a place of public shame. I can just imagine as those were passing by, some turned away in horror as they saw that terrific scene that was there being portrayed before them. Others probably were walking by straining their necks to see how much of that scene of horror they could take in. But I say it was a prominent place. And this was at the time of the Passover. Remember the Passover was one of the pilgrimage feasts of Israel where all the population was now gathering together in Jerusalem for this celebration. So the city was jam-packed with people going by, looking at those three crosses. I can just imagine again as some were going by and they looked at that scene, they, they recognized Jesus. Maybe they had heard him. And I dare say many there had heard him preach his sermons in Galilee. Many had witnessed the many miracles that he had performed. Now they see this one on that center. Is, is that Jesus? Why is Jesus there? Why is Jesus there? They heard him. They saw him now. Surprised as they saw this one in this most conspicuous and prominent place, bearing this public shame as he was hanging there upon this Roman cross. But it was a prophetic place as well. The very fact that it was located outside the city had theological significance. You know well from your Old Testament that outside the camp was always a place of uncleanness. Outside the camp was where they would take the sin offering and the guilt offering after it was sacrificed and burn the corpses there, a place of uncleanness. Those that were lepers were outside the city. Outside the city was always a place associated with uncleanness. The guilt offering there, lepers there, those that were ostracized for whatever reason were there, a place of shame, a place of shame. And I dare say that those that were looking at Jesus outside the city knew the significance. They knew the significance of what it was to be outside the city gates. Isaiah 
prophetically spoke of this when he said, They shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me. And as they saw Jesus there, as they saw Jesus there upon that cross, they considered him then to be a transgressor. They considered him to be that one that was guilty. Why else would he be there? Oh, he was unclean, wasn't he? He was unclean. He was the lamb of sacrifice. He was that innocent one that took upon himself the sins of his people. Oh, yes, he was unclean. Yes, he was there regarded even, yes, by God as the transgressor, as the sins of his people were now being imputed to him. And in that place, unclean he was. The very place of the cross, the very place of the cross points to his suffering shame for us. Bearing shame, scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. A conspicuous place. But we can see also as the light shines upon the cross, we see the cross in the light. We see as well that it was a corrupt company that was there. See that in verses 27 to 28. Pilate unwillingly had fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that Jesus, the servant, the Savior, would be numbered with the transgressors. Pilate did so because of his hatred of the Jews. They had put this constant, persistent pressure upon him, insisting And he was forced to punish Christ, to execute Christ, seemingly against his better judgment. But caving into that pressure. But he was not going to do so without expressing and demonstrating his own animosity toward the Jewish people. Because of that inscription over the cross inscribed, here is the king of the Jews. He meant that as an insult. What an insult it would be, not only to Jesus, but to the Jewish people, to have their king now crucified on a Roman cross, a place for criminals and those that were so low. Oh, the Jews took that as an insult. They asked Pilate to change the wording. He said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. But yet in that effort, in that effort to bring ridicule to the Jewish people, even greater shame was put upon Jesus as he hanged there in the middle of criminals. Those that deserved to be where they were. In the midst, numbered with the transgressors, a corrupt company. But you know, it was not unusual. It was not unusual for Jesus to be found in the company of sinners. All through his ministry, he went to those that were unclean, healing lepers eating with the publicans and sinners. It was not uncommon. 
Not uncommon for Jesus to be found in the company of sinners. But now, not just in the company of sinners, but now regarded as a sinner himself. This one who knew no sin. This one that knew no sin was now made sin. He who was pure. He who was undefiled. Now receiving the very wages of sin. What a corrupt company. But he was. Oh, Jesus, even on the cross, understand, please. I've heard it said that Christ on the cross was the greatest sinner that ever lived. Christ was not a sinner. In his acts, he was pure and blameless and undefiled. He was never a sinner. But judicially, judicially the holy God imputed, that is, he regarded all of the sins and all of the transgressions and all of the guilt that belonged to sinners, that belonged to his people that were sinners. Jesus now took that upon himself legally and paid the penalty of the wages of sin as the wages of sin to death. But not for his own sins. Not for his own transgressions. For he was pure and spotless. He was that innocent one that now you, you think of those Old Testament sacrifices as the guilty one would come and lean upon that animal confessing his sins and transferring his guilt to that innocent victim that would then be slain. And so it was. So it was in the infinite sense that all the sins of his people that we, that we as it were laid our hands upon him. Confessing our sins and he then taking our guilt and taking our transgressions and our iniquity upon himself. Paying the penalty for our sins. Oh, he was numbered. He was numbered with the transgressors as he bore the sins of his people. But as the light As the light shines upon the cross, we see the cross and the light. We see something also of the crass mockery that was being leveled against Jesus. Deliberate, brutal, inhuman. His dying hours disturbed. His dying agonies intensified by the mockery of his foes. Psalm 22 that we have been singing together speaks of that bestial crowd that surrounded the Lord Jesus. The bulls of Bashan, those strong bulls, the wild dogs surrounding and nipping as it were at that one who was there suffering. What a demonstration of the depths of depravity as sinners express their disdain for the only Savior of sinners. As puny creatures, so taunting the Creator, the eternal sovereign Christ, 
This one that was eternally used to hearing the song of the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy. That praise given to him in eternity. But now, in this tragic scene of time, that one that was used to the angelic chorus, now here's the arrogant mockery of puny sinners, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, jeered with divisive, derisive taunts by the spectators, those that were just walking by and seeing this horrific scene, joined in, some out of curiosity, some out of carelessness, but they joined in the ridicule. There was the religious clergy that blasphemed, There were the pagan soldiers that knew nothing about who Jesus was, but they joined in the mockery. There were those thieves that were condemned with him, that railed on him, reproached him. There was blasphemy. There was careless talk and chatter. Terrible response. Here's the Savior of the world. Here's the one that is giving himself as the sacrifice for the sins of his people, but now the object of this careless blasphemy. Heads were wagging. Lips were being shot out in ridicule and jest. Noses were being lifted up in arrogance as they stared Upon that one, the Lamb of God, how one responds, yeah, how one responds to the cross and the one that is and was upon that cross reveals and determines destiny. To mock the cross, as so many do today even. Majority seem to do today. Leads to doom. Leads to destruction. They wanted to see something. Did you see that? They wanted to see something. In order that they might believe. Show us something. Come down from the cross. Do something stupendous. And we'll believe. Seeing is believing, they thought. But in reality, it's believing that is seeing. Those that believe. Those of us that believe and those of them then that believed. Saw. Saw the reality. Faith. Supersedes sight. Christ had done many stupendous things. They had witnessed the stupendous things that Christ had done all the way through his ministry. So this itself is mockery. This itself is a lie that they are telling. But so hard 
So hard is the heart. So insensitive is the heart of the unconverted that they can look, that they can look at the sufferings of this one and just heap more shame, more ridicule, increasing the agony, increasing the sufferings. But as we see him, I trust as believers, as we see him there, We add not to the mockery. We add not to the shame and the ridicule, but when we consider that old rugged cross, reason for praise, hallelujah, hallelujah, what a Savior. But again, as we Look at the cross and the light. We see something of the cruel suffering. Verse 25 says it all. They crucified him. Lingering. Painful. Excruciating. Death. A hard way to die. The cross was a hard way to die. And the crucifixion was not unique to Jesus. Those on either side of Jesus were being crucified the same way he was being crucified. The difference, they deserved it. But Jesus now, again as that spotless and that pure Lamb of God, that one that was perfect in every way, now the very fact of his perfection and his deity in that perfect humanity, intensifying, intensifying the agony, the suffering. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet thee, him said. Or thorns compose so rich a crown. All oh, the agony of the cross. Psalm 22 describes some of that for us. Exhaustion. Strength was being poured out. The bones were being disjointed. Burning anguish of the heart and the wounds that were being inflicted raw. Intolerable distress as he was pierced. Verse 23, they, at the very beginning, offered him that wine, mingled with myrrh, designed to be somewhat of a narcotic that was given even to those that were suffering on the cross, to somehow dull the pain, to dull the agony of that suffering. The Christ refused it. He refused that narcotic that would somehow impair the feeling of the suffering. For he was determined. He was determined by that eternal resolve to accept in full the lot of the undeserved pain and torment anguish that was appointed to him. 
For that suffering was essential to the atonement. And if he was going to drink damnation dry, he had to drink it every last drop. Sufferings. Sufferings that were real. As he took the curse for sin. Sufferings that were real we can't begin to describe and to imagine. A kind of suffering, physical suffering, mental suffering, spiritual suffering that Jesus endured. But it was suffering that was vicarious. Suffering that was vicarious, it was in the place of his people. Sufferings that were redemptive. For the salvation of his people. How does Paul define the gospel? The first component of the gospel, Paul defines that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. A real historic death. A vicarious, a substitutionary death. And a death that was because of our sins that redemptive in its purpose. All the cruel suffering. The cruel sufferings and those that would behold the cross could see something of the agony. They could see something of the intense pain that the Lord Jesus was enduring. And I say, how can we look at that? As believers, if you're a believer, how can, you, how can we look at the cross without not having our hearts stirred? How can we look at the cross in the light? Without having our emotions, there's more to it than emotion, but our emotions, can we, can we look at the cross and be untouched and be unmoved? What a Savior. The cross and the light. But at the sixth hour, verse 33, and when the sixth hour was come, There was darkness over the whole land. We've seen the cross and the light. But now we consider the cross in the dark. Three hours, the cross visible to all. Three hours, the cross visible to none. Except the Father. There was something done on the cross. Outside the sight of man. Something done on the cross. A transaction there that is beyond comprehension. As the light of the world was now eclipsed. By the wrath of God. That was being poured out in the fullness of infinite fury. On the beloved son. That beloved son of his bosom who had now taken the sins of his people and took the chastisement with a view to accomplish the peace for his people. I'm not saying that divine wrath was not an element until the sixth hour, from the very beginning. But I am saying that the darkness underscores the theology 
of what was happening on the cross. For there was something happening on the cross that was Godward, that was Godward business. That was Godward business. We think of the toning work of Christ as being propitiation. That is the satisfaction of the wrath of God. And in expiation, the cleansing, the taking away of the sins. But the Godward act, the Godward direction of the cross is what makes the manward effect of the cross possible. Oh, the wrath of God was on him from the very beginning of these six hours. But I'm saying there's something about the darkness that reminds us, that teaches us, that there was a transaction taking place upon the cross that too sacred for mortal eyes. To see what happened in the darkness We have to believe that justice was exacted. That justice was exacted. It was an insult. It's an insult to think that there's other ways to God other than the cross. This is God's ordained way from eternity. This was set. And Christ bore our sins in his own body in the tree, Peter says. His blood shedding and death is the only way that God could be both just and the justifier. Sin demands death. And the atonement requires the suffering and the blood shedding. And it was on the cross. It was on the cross that God, in those amazing statements of the prophet Zechariah, that God commanded the sword to awake. Awake, O sword. This is Jehovah speaking concerning his son. Jehovah says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against this one that is my equal, my son. In that great 53rd chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, as though Isaiah was at the very foot of the cross, verse 10 says that it was the pleasure of the Lord, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That is, it was the decree of God. It was the eternal purpose of God to bruise him. Oh yes, he was taken by the hands of a betrayer. He was taken by that band of Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders and the conspiracy of Pilate and Herod was there for certain. He was delivered to the cross by the hands of wicked men. But it was the foreordained. It was the foreordained purpose and the foreordained counsel of the Trinity for this to happen, for this to happen. Justice. How can God be just and the justifier? It's by those who believe in Jesus because, because of the sacrifice. Because of that presentation of the sacrifice, and that offering of the sacrifice to the God of heaven. And there is the ninth hour comes. Crying, Christ crying. 
Under the Father, read Psalm 22, he's praying. But now, piercing that darkness, that cry, my God, my God. Why? Hast thou forsaken me? And the answer to that question brings us to the very heart of the atonement. Why was Christ forsaken? Because he took upon himself the sins of his people, bore those sins and paid the penalty of those sins with a view to achieving their peace and their reconciliation with God. Who can begin to understand? Who of us can begin to comprehend what it was for Christ to be so forsaken by God? But that is the very essence of the gospel. A forsaking that was real. A forsaking that was necessary. As hell came to Calvary. As hell came to Calvary. Apostles' Creed speaks of Christ descending into hell. Our Heidelberg interprets that correctly, not that Christ went into, but rather that hell came to him on the cross. On the cross. Jesus confronted hell. But I say the cross is the solution to that dilemma. How a holy God can remain holy and yet forgive sins. So by faith we believe. And as we reflect upon the cross of the darkness, we believe that justice was exacted. But we also believe then that justice was satisfied. That Christ did not die in vain. That he accomplished what he intended to accomplish. The peace for his people. The salvation for his people. That people that God had given to him. That people that God had given to him in that council in eternity. Isaiah 53. If you make your soul an offering for sin... Then you will see your seed. And it was for the joy that was set before it that Jesus endured the sufferings of the cross, Hebrews says. And I would submit to you that the joy that was set before him was the people that he was dying for. For the joy that was set before him. And God was satisfied. And justice was exacted. And justice, I say, is satisfied. He died not in vain. Hebrews describes Christ entering with his own blood into that most holy place. And that when he entered into that most holy place behind the veil, behind the veil, he took our anchor of hope with him. And that's our hope. That's the salvation of his people. 
When Christ entered into that place behind the veil, he took the anchor of our hope, steadfast and sure. Salvation. And symbolizing that. When Christ gave up the ghost, what happened? When he voluntarily died, the veil of the temple was written in twain from the top to the bottom. In reality, upon the death of Christ, he enters into the very presence of God, offering the evidences here of his sacrifice and to symbolize that heavenly entrance, the veil of the temple. That veil, remember, that separated. Oh, a thick veil it was. Tradition is that it was at least as wide as a hand. That veil, that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. From the top to the bottom. Was torn. The priest would have been there in the temple doing all of their priestly stuff. At three o'clock in the afternoon. And while those priests were doing their stuff, miraculously, supernaturally, from the top to the bottom, that veil, that veil that separated and kept secluded the ark, that symbolic manifestation of God's presence, was torn asunder, symbolizing the freedom now, the access now, through Jesus, the access through Jesus that men can have through the very presence of God. He opened up, removing every impediment, removing every obstacle, Removing every hindrance into God's presence. The veil torn down. Come to Jesus. Life in Jesus. He's opened up the way. A blood-sprinkled way into the very presence of God. And the only way that you can get into the presence of God is through that shed blood of the Lord Jesus. But there is that way. There is that way. Tradition has it that the Jews put the veil back together. They sewed it back up. Josephus, Jewish historian, talks about Titus. You remember Titus, the Roman general that 40 years after the crucifixion comes and destroys the temple, ransacks the temple. And tradition has it that Cyrus, or not Cyrus, but Titus, took his sword and cut the veil in pieces, implying that it was whole once again. So antagonistic, so antagonistic and such enemies of Jesus that they put the veil back. Oh, there is the wickedness of unbelief. There is the wickedness and the hardness of the heart that rejects the only way 
that rejects the only way that man can have access to the Lord. But justice was satisfied. And here's the gospel. Here is the historic foundation of the gospel. It is enough that Jesus died. That's historic fact. But here's our salvation when we can also say it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. There's our salvation. There is our only hope. So as we come into this passion season, and we'll be thinking particularly about aspects of that passion leading to the crucifixion and then to the glorious resurrection. Can we pour contempt on all of our pride? Can we set aside all of our concerns and just lift our voices in praise, in thanksgiving, in adoration, in love for what Christ has done. And shame on us. Shame on us if we can come to view the cross with hearts that are cold, with hearts that are insensitive, unfeeling. Let us see Jesus. Amen.